Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast, recorded live from the Ruby Barn on Main Street here in Suffield, Connecticut. Really happy about my guest today. It's Flo Motlick, the CTO of longtime sponsor Codeship. Hey, Flo. Hey. Thanks for coming on today. Uh, thanks for having me. So here's the brief story about how we ended up uh, arranging for today's interview. I've been reading your advertisements or Codeship's advertisements on the show for, I don't know, maybe a couple months. Mm-hmm. And it's been an interesting experience for me because, so the first time I actually didn't know Codeship, so I was you know brand new to the idea of Codeship. I'm a, I I obviously knew continuous integration, but but wasn't familiar with Codeship specifically. And then the second time that I read it, I said I've got to learn more. So I went and read the blog and watched the video on the homepage. And then maybe two times later, around the fourth time I read the ad, I said I got to I got to sign up for this so I can talk intelligently about Codeship. And then I used it and liked it and then kept reading these spots. And about seven times in, I said, I wonder what the backstory is about Codeship because things seem to be done quite well. And at least from my um, perspective, uh, uh, Codeship sort of came out of nowhere to me at least and uh, got interested in hearing the backstory. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if this is evidence that podcast advertising works the way it's supposed <laughs> to work, or at least it did on me. <laughs> We're happy so far. <laughs> well, good. So uh, I'm interested in a couple things today. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, let's talk a little bit about about you, so we know uh, you know know each other a little bit. But then I, sure. I'm interested both in the the story of Codeship as a as a business, and also a bit of a behind the scenes on the the. Uh, technical challenges around running a service like Codeship. Sure, but why don't we why don't we ru- rewind and, and talk about you a little bit first? So introduce yourself, please. Um, yeah, um, I'm Flo. As you introduced, I'm CTO here at Codeship. I so we started Codeship. So I, I'm originally as uh, most of the team at this point still is um, from Austria. So from from Vienna specifically, um, and got. Studied there at the uh, UT Vienna, and basically, um, how the whole idea of of Codeship came about is really that I worked in various um, either companies or in at the university, and I was always very interested in in code quality and automation. So it was always so I like when I did at, at the Java times in the far past with all the find bugs, check style, and uh, general automation with Maven, and, and and then of course Jenkins. Um, so I set that up uh, numerous times in different companies with different teams, and it was always a rather frustrating experience because I, the, the the input that I got into like how my code was changing and how stuff was happening wasn't really the most helpful for the team. And to get it to a point that it's extremely helpful, there was just so much time that needed to be spent, and. So in university, I like as a side project, basically, I came up with why not build something hosted uh, continuous integration, which is good that I didn't know better because if I knew the complexities beforehand, um, I don't know if I would have done it because it was really it's a really complex system. But that's that's the nice part of being in university and not really knowing the complexities um, beforehand. I think that's and, almost always true, right? That's yeah. the thing that you look back and and did that that made the biggest impact was the thing that in hindsight seemed like the worst idea from a from a diffi- degree of difficulty standpoint at least absolutely absolutely but it, it was it was fun from the beginning and, and and very challenging and and it also so that was more of the technical side but i've also 
So in Vienna and, and together with one of my co-founders, we were part of um, what is in the past has been called Start Europe and is now uh, the Pioneers Festival. That's basically, so the, the idea there was that um, as tech guys and uh, people from the business university, we wanted to, to mix up um, tech and, and biz guys. So more of a startup ecosystem is built in, in Austria or Central Europe because it's just, it's lacking behind in, in, in many ways uh, to Berlin or, of course, uh, Boston or, or San Francisco, of course. So we, we, we did these events, um, kind of like startup weekend events, and we've seen so many teams that the problem for them really was is, is shipping um, quickly and getting stuff out to the customers, that whole lean startup, get feedback from your customers, build an MVP, build, iterate quickly on top of that MVP, that's something that was very hard for a lot of teams because a lot of tech guys, like they know how to implement technology, but they are not that interested in process or workflow really. So it's not something that they think about a lot. So the, the problem there is that they might be able to build the greatest things ever, um, but they can't roll it out quickly unless they um, spend a lot of time thinking about the process. And so process was always something that, that me and, and my, my co-founders um, were very interested in. And so helping people not just with the technology, so with what is now CodeShip, the, the technology, but also with blog posts, screencasts, and, and, and going into podcasts and all that stuff to, to tell them about potential workflows, potential processes that they can follow that have been battle tested, that work really well. So they don't have to think, they don't have to spend all that time figuring out by themselves, like what is the best process, but have like a framework that they can start from and then adapt it to exactly what they need. But that was something that we, because we've seen so many companies fail, um, specifically because of that, because just like a couple of great tech guys came together and built something incredible, but then couldn't sustain that speed over time um, because they are, they're, their process just fell apart completely. And they still built the nice things, but they built something that wasn't really, really wasn't relevant um, to what their customers needed. And so that's where we, like that, that was the whole combination of co-chip, continuous delivery, continuous deployment and integration and getting all of that together. Yeah, from the outside, it seems like you guys are pretty balanced in the areas you said. So for being a relatively young company, um, the balance between having a pretty robust product and a and a pretty... Um, well-balanced communication approach that that hits people in multiple medium, different types of messages, um, but but all unified. It uh, it makes sense that you just told that story because it, it seems like you're a bit more mature on the communication side than one would think you'd be. Yeah, and that, and that's that's definitely uh, thanks to my co-founders. Which so we we're not. Yeah, a, you're, you're not going to take credit for that. Uh, totally not. No, um, <laughs> you could. I'm, they're I'm, not even here to defend themselves. <laughs> that's true, but they're gonna hear that. <laughs> right uh, but no so that we, we're not a like so i'm really the tech guy in in our team so mo has a tech background but then studies business administration so mo is our ceo and and one of my co-founders and and manny our third co-founder um is so he has an advertisement background and graphic design background and and does our marketing now and so he's the guy responsible for the messages or the messaging out there i'm just the guy writing the content in the end or like doing that, but he's really the the brain behind all of the different marketing channels that we do, and that in the beginning, I think that as a balanced team, that was always important from the beginning, and even having many who is 
just a designer. So he, from the beginning, there was a strong sense of usability and, and UX in CodeShip. So, and especially some somebody who, who really pushed for that in the team. Because I've also, like, I've seen so many tech teams who just built really cool technology, but then just they don't push for usability that much. Or it's really hard for them because they, they don't know how to do that. And so the, their solution is always building greater tech and not necessarily building greater UX because they don't really know how to. And that was something that was important for me from the beginning, um, getting people in um, that, that really know that. And I've, I've known Manny for, at this point, 15 years, 16 years. So we've been in school together and, and Mo for a couple of years as well uh, before we started. Um, so it was really, it was great having, or it's now really great to have that, that team that just spans all um, the necessary um, knowledge that, that you need really to bring a product to market. Um, it's harder in the beginning because you just have less engineering resources um, to, to do. But now it's really great because somebody's pushing for marketing, somebody's pushing for UX uh, all the time and, and, and for building the team all the time because you have all these different kind of people um, in the team. Yeah, that's a smart insight, the idea that, that early on it's really difficult to have that balance of a team because you feel like you're spending 75% of your money on things that aren't product, so to speak. But but if you get through that hump, yeah, what a, what a great place to be to have a, a more balanced ability to communicate to the market what you have. Um, yeah, paid out in the end, yeah. Yeah, so Mo and Flo, did you, it, it seems like when you met at one of those school mixers, it, it was destined to be. With, with names that go together yes, that well. Yes, yes. Uh, that's especially, like, we've never we've never heard that. So back home, like, Mo and Flo is not that, like, nobody really thinks about that. But once we, we came to the yes uh, at the beginning of last year, that's, like, in every meeting when we come in, we say, like, we're Mo and Flo. It's, like, and people remember, which is really nice because we meet them in the next meeting and they're still, like, hey, Mo and Flo, right? Yeah, I wonder uh, if that's going to be a trend that you guys like. So, so fu- future <laughs> co-founders will like temporarily adjust their, maybe permanently adjust their names to rhyme to, to increase retention. <laughs> I, I can like in our experience, it really helps with messaging and getting stuck in people's heads. Now, what's your name really then? Maybe, maybe this whole Florian. Fl- this whole flow thing is just a cover for. Holy <laughs> not Florian and Moritz are our real names, and it just it's so flow is the typical like that's the shortcut for for Florian. Um, that, that we use in, in, in the German language and, and more it's like Mo is not that typical but it's still rather typical I'm, um, I'm surprised that, that there aren't more Austrian voiceover um, people in, the U, in like US media because it's a, it's a good accent it, like it's a like I, I like you guys have I assume it's one of you doing the voiceover on your video on the website and it works. Like you don't hear a lot of uh, videos with voiceovers with Austrian accents if you're if you're an American. And I think there should be more. <laughs> That's good to hear. <laughs> in we case, will do a lot more. <laughs> in case this doesn't work out, you could always go into <laughs> screencast voiceovers. <clears throat> okay, so I, I, I'm not clear uh, who's where. So is everyone in Boston now, or, or you're still in Vienna now? So I'm in Boston right now. So the team is basically split at this point between um, Vienna and Boston, and and we'll keep it like that um, for in the future. Um, so so we we came to Boston for for TechStars at the beginning of 2013. So in in, in March of 2013, and um, so Mo uh, lives here full time now. And the, we're currently figuring out the visa, so I just got my visa um, to spend a lot more time here. And we are currently um, growing our team here in Boston. 
Um, so hiring uh, senior people here in Boston to grow the team, to have a strong team of developers in both locations. And to them, so what we do is we regularly um, bring people back and forth. So if somebody wants to work from Vienna in Boston for a couple of months, that's possible. And we've done that over the last couple of months. And the other way around, of course, as well, that if somebody who works for us in Boston and just wants to spend a couple of months in, in Vienna uh, and, and work in Vienna and with a the team there, um, that's totally open and very encouraged um, from us. So we get that that good mix up of, of people and everybody knows each other because otherwise it's it's really risky to get into a point where you have two different companies and two different cultures right. and that's not what we want to have. We want to have the mix up and it's a nice perk. It's Now what about, re- what about remote people? Are there people outside of Austria and Boston or is it all Austria and Boston? Um, so currently it's all Austria and, and, and Boston. Um, we... At this point, we want to grow. So we, we still need to grow a larger team in these two locations before we feel comfortable with getting in remote people or especially like when we want to take on remote people. If they're super specialized in like CI or deployment and just like they're one of two people worldwide who can do that and like roughly live in the same time zones, so, so that works out, then it's definitely tempting and something that we could think about. But generally, we try to grow the team um, at this point primarily in Boston. So we got a couple of people back home in, in Vienna. And Europe is for us a, a longer-term investment as well because we, at some point, like it's it's a lot harder to hire here in, in or like competition is a lot uh, bigger in, in Boston um, or in the U.S. general for developers than it is in, in Europe. So that's for us a longer-term asset since, since we're, we're, we're already there, we're from there, we understand the culture, so we can hire people much easier uh, in Europe in the longer term as well and either relocate them to Vienna or do remote uh, in Europe. Um, but at this point, we just want to build out our teams in the two locations and have the feeling that, especially now with Boston, including as well, that there are enough people that we can grow with um, in the short to medium term and longer term will definitely, I mean, I think remote at this point, it's it's really, really hard to build companies and startups without at least at some point thinking about remote um, because the best people aren't necessarily um, in that place that you are. And it's just that the cultural shift is happening a lot and just remote becomes something that I think a lot of great developers just demand yeah. um, now, yeah, start demanding. Right. So... I think that as that's done, if you want to do it or not, um, there isn't really any choice. I think in the longer term, um, if you want to get the best people for the job, I think that we just you have to get yourself into a position of doing remote and being able to do remote. And since we already do like two locations at least um, already, so we we like all the problems with that you that you have with you need to have everything written down, need to do all through emails or through HipChat or something like that. Um, that's something that we already face. So we are building up to being able to to comfortably support remote people. Um, but I think that timing is really important there because if you don't have the experience or the right people um, to do remote, then it might not really work out or the remote person might feel not really good about that because we can't give enough support because don't we have the team structures and, and it's strong enough to already support remote. So we're definitely hesitant um, and and want to be one hundred percent sure that it's going to work out before we do it. So, what's it been like, uh, uh, at least temporarily or partially, moving to Boston? How's the uh, how's the um, city been? Uh, great. Uh, I like Boston a lot. It's it's a really really nice city. It's very 
it feels very European in a way, like how the layout is. I'm still, because I'm just not accustomed to it, not the biggest fan of the grid layout. That is like New York or San Francisco, because I'm just, I'm not accustomed to it. So I like that in Boston, the city, the, the people are nice. Um, everything's been really nice. The city is really pretty. And of course, it's just a big difference in terms of um, other startups, the people that are working here, um, the problems those people face. So just everything is just turned up to a couple more levels than yeah. just back home because there's just bigger problems that people need to tackle. Um, but yeah, so generally, uh, like the city a lot, have spent um, what nine months last year, no, six months in Boston, nine, uh, three months in San Francisco, then a couple, another two months now here, and now that I have the visa, it'll be a little more. So definitely like the city, Boston is our headquarter here, is where we raised our money, mm-hmm. um, and and it, it works from a six-hour difference. I think that last year I spent uh, some time in in San Francisco for a couple months, and just nine hours time difference to Vienna just didn't work out. Right. Well, you're one of the first people I've ever heard give Boston credit for having nice people as one of its key. Yes, attributes. I mean, that, I, I heard that a lot. That apparently Boston are the least nice people in the U.S. But from our perspective, Boston look Americans in general are a lot nicer than Europeans, and I love Europeans for various different reasons. But they're very closed off on like the first meeting, and people are just a lot nicer like when you just meet them and talk to them. Um, and you're like, like the farther west I went, um, or Californians specifically are even nicer, or like in the south uh, a little bit. Um, from and to my limited experience, um, but people generally have been very nice uh, in 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 the states so far, and have been a lot more open and nicer than we are in Europe, or that most people are in Europe. So that's why I heard that a lot. That like when I, I always say people in Boston are so nice. And everybody's like, what? <laughs> which, which Boston? <laughs> yeah. But I like, they are a lot nicer than, or I mean, people aren't bad back home. It's just more closed off. It's just, it's not that, uh, that open culture as it is here. So I've heard the, the sociologists, I guess, have a, have a, a term for the difference that you're talking about. And they usually use two uh, fruits to describe the two different cultures between like, say Eastern Europe, Western Europe and the U S I've heard that the, <clears throat> the more initially closed off, but longer term relationships they call coconuts and mm-hmm. the more American friendly at first, but maybe we won't be friends forever approach is called a peach. Yep. And uh, I think that's right. You know, it's, once you see it as coconut and peach, then it's a little less that one's friendly and the other isn't, and more it's just a, a difference in the experience of getting to know someone. Um, Absolutely, I think that's that's totally at the core of it. That it's just to 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 get to know people in Europe is just a little more, and it's often the small things like just talking to people in an elevator or something like that. That is something that is rather untypical, I think, back home. Right. That just where people are just more open to to chat or. Um, here, but it's just, it's very, it's just an easy chat and then you go your own way again. And that's something that happens less back home. Yeah. I heard. So one of the biggest, uh, like contrasting cultures to, uh, um, the American peach culture is, is Russian culture, I think, for at least from what I understand. And, um, I've got a very good friend that's, that's, uh, from Moscow that lives in the U S now. And she said it took a long time for her to get used to the peach culture in particular, mm-hmm. because, um, in Russia, if someone smiles to you, 
um, and they don't know you, there's like the assumption is that they're making fun of you in some sort of way yeah. because no one would do that, that, uh, or not very few people would do that. that didn't know you. I, I found that interesting because I could imagine how that'd be the case, right? If you, if you spent most of your time never seeing smiles from anyone, but your family and close friends, then someone started to smile at you, you get all uncomfortable. So yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> all right. Um, let's switch into CodeShip a little bit more specifically as a, as a technical mm -hmm. uh, product and problem for you to solve. So uh, we've gone now uh, 20 minutes without talking <laughs> at all about what CodeShip does. So let's, let's assume nothing. Mm -hmm. Let's pretend I know Jack Diddley about CodeShip. Describe to me what, uh, what it does. Sure. Um, so the basic premise is, as I said before, that we want people to ship code faster to their customers, get quick feedback, and be able to eat through it quickly. All of that in a very automated way. So um, that whole thing is, is continuous delivery, basically. So that includes automated testing. So you want to make sure at every change that you do, whenever one of your developers pushes, pushes a change to either GitHub or Bitbucket, um, we take that run your automated test. The same automated test you've written and tested with other tools like Jenkins so far, all work with us, all kinds of different databases and languages. Um, you just plug it in, it takes two minutes to set up, and then we automatically run all of your tests. And then the next step in, in continuous delivery is the deployment part. So you might want a, your master branch to be automatically deployed to your staging application. Um, that's very easy to set up. Or you might want to have your production branch always deployed to your production application. What that in the end leads to is that you can start focusing only on your repository and everything in terms of testing and deployment of your application then is automated in our system and we take care of that. So you only think about which change of your code goes into which branch of your um, repository and following that and that triggers Test automated testing, automated deployment, and notifications for you so you know if any part of your infrastructure has changed. And that allows you, because it's completely automated and tested all the time, that allows you to move very quickly, um, ship stuff very quickly, and in the case that something doesn't work, for example, it's very easy to just push an update into a specific branch, and that goes out immediately because it's tested first and then, then deployed. And you can build arbitrarily complex workflows, um, basically where you might want to deploy feature branches into QA applications and have somebody in QA look at that. Or then as soon as you merge it, push it into a staging application and have some more complex tests against that staging application so you know that that works. And yeah, that's so is roughly So con is continuous delivery your term or is that an industry term that's being adopted now? No, it's definitely... It's or both. Yeah, it's 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 an industry term, and it's still. Um, I don't want to say it's loosely defined. It's there. There are some defin definitions of that, but it's still. I think that the whole continuous delivery is still finding its way um, in what exactly everybody means with that, and the same with continuous integration. I mean, for example, continuous integration at this point is at least as it is used in most of like the startup or like small medium sized teams is basically means automated testing. Um, that's what pretty much everybody understands when we say continuous integration, um, as far as the people that we've talked to. Um, and, and the same basically goes for like continuous deployment or continuous delivery. There are still like, there's a lot of different um, definitions 
going around that people think about. So what we now um, are doing is like we're stepping back and saying, okay, we do continuous delivery. So what we want is that you deliver regularly and as fast as you can, as fast as your process allows to your customers. And that includes automated testing and automated deployment um, so that all you need to do is really focus on your code and everything else. So um, we, and I, I haven't better, found a better word for that, but that's really, um, it's repository-driven infrastructure. We think that um, you should only think about your repository and everything else just is eventually consistent. So if you push something to your master branch, eventually, if the whole process succeeds, whatever is in your master branch should be in your production application or whatever is in your production branch should be in your production environment. And But as soon as you like merge it in there or push it in there, um, you should be able to just go back and say, okay, the system takes care of that. I know that some some somebody else or some other system is is thinking about all of that process. So I don't have to think about. I can just go on to the next feature, and can and and I know and I trust the whole process and the system to inform me when something goes wrong. And I think that's a very powerful change of of mind where you don't sit in front of that deployment anymore and you don't think about it anymore. You just think about like. I want this, you tell the system, I want this thing to be in production at some point and let me know once it is, mm-hmm. basically. And, and But you do all that by just focusing on your repo because we live in our repositories every day. We think about them all the time. And, and they're very, like there cannot be any misunderstandings. Like there is one last commit on your master branch or on your production branch. There, I'm personally not the biggest fan of deploy buttons or something else somewhere because there's always the problem of who clicked the deploy button last. So you need a lock. So you need to make sure that maybe only the last thing got deployed. So there can be just a lot of confusion. That just can happen with um, the repository because there's always a last thing on top of that repository. And that whatever is pushed there last, that triggers um, the whole workflow. And and you don't have to think about that. And And as soon as you do it 10 times a day or 15 times a day or whatever, um, you start totally trusting and like that that it's I think that a lot of like in that process a lot of that is around gut feeling like if you have the feeling that you can trust the process because it saved you in the past or it worked very well in the past or if something got was wrong it told you immediately um, you get to a state where you can really focus a lot more in how do I provide better value to my customers and what should the next features be and how can I improve everything and you don't think about all of that stuff that can get automated. Um, because we don't have to, like, at this point, because building infrastructure itself is so cheap, it's all about how fast we can move and how fast we can push stuff out there and build something that is valuable for the people that we want to support and that, the in the end, we want to get money from. Um, if, if, if we don't move as quick as possible and build the right thing, then just somebody else will. Because there is no limit, that there is no barrier of entry in terms of like how much money we have to invest to buy racks or something. So, so let me ask some questions about adjacent features, and I want to figure out where where the line of continuous delivery is drawn, and like where you know, so what fits in the box and what fits out of the box. So, I could imagine that um, automated code reviews could possibly be part of a vision for continuous delivery. Um, so this would be something like what uh, Code Climate does. Is that? 
but 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 then it sounded more like that in the first place when you were talking about it. But then when you when when you focused more later on the sort of eventual consistency and the sanctity of the branches and the workflows related to what happens when branches hit a particular you know when something changes on a given branch, then maybe I wasn't so sure. It felt like maybe it was it was about DevOps more so than sort of uh, the the programming experience and code quality. So is that is is that is automatic automated code reviews possibly part of the vision uh absolutely i think that it's not it's not necessarily part of what we want to build or so i'd rather integrate with code climate and for example as part of your build like you can you could just pull data from their api and see like fail the build on code chip if um the if code climate has found any kind of errors or like with a github integration that works as well so that's totally part of I think in the end, it comes down to whatever a team needs to be certain that a specific change is ready to go out into production that can be automated tests, that can be automated code review, that can be uh, a QA, a manual QA process, that can be um, manual or uh, code reviews, whatever is part of that. And as much of that as possible should be automated. But then there possibly needs to be a workflow where it isn't where not every step is automated because at, at some point you want to have a review. You want to have somebody else to take a look at, at something just for, or you want different people to take a look. So for example, what we are now doing or starting to do now with, with all of our feature branches that you can just say uh, on a feature branch, like I want that deployed somewhere. So we'll just create a new Heroku application, deploy it in there, send out the link um, to to or like put it in in the build so everybody can take a look at that feature branch um that's something that we've like a simple script that we've built now for ourselves and and can see very well to include that as a feature in codechip uh in the longer term because deployment is something that the deployment is not something that should only happen at the end when you want to go into production but deployment is something that is in our opinion an integral part of like the whole workflow and even before something gets merged into like your master branch because you want to deploy maybe you want to deploy that change from the feature branch somewhere for somebody to take a look but if like the QA person or the product or the designer who wants to review that has to ask the developer all the time could you please take that and deploy that somewhere and give me the URL that's a lot of time that needs to be uh, invested and especially if you want to move very quickly and just push a couple of times a day, that's something that needs to be automated where there is no interaction anymore between the people. It just happens and you just know where it is. And so I think that all of these steps, all of whatever is necessary to give a team the feeling that we can, that, that we're reasonably sure that we can move very fast and deploy that very quickly um, is all part of of delivery or that, that validation phase. So I would think that, um, I'm not sure what the, what this class of app is called, but like exception trap trapping and, and, and reporting that, that sort of is similar to me in that one of the things in my experience, at least that, that affects the confidence of an individual or a team mm -hmm. is when the deploy happens. And for whatever reason, things don't go quite as expected. Yep. Um, you know, exceptions start firing off that they didn't see coming, et cetera. And, and I could imagine that being either in or out of the vision for continuous delivery also. Um, 
Absolutely, absolutely in the vision. I think that is just part of like after a deployment happens, there can be different validation steps that that works mm -hmm. that can include just hitting the URL, just a simple curl request um, to to the URL, just making sure it, it's there. That's something that that even like it didn't save us often, but so we deploy into a staging application first and just make sure it boots up correctly. And we've had, it's thankfully a long time ago at this point, but where we just updated the, the proc file um, for Heroku and just there was an error in there, so it didn't boot up correctly. And we easily caught that by just having that one request. But you can easily extend that to other things or even include, so deploy your new thing into production and if the error rate on Rollbar or other services that are out there, if the error rate um, just goes over a certain limit or like increases over a certain limit, um, then you'll just fail the build and roll back. Um, that's definitely something that 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 can be part of that whole um, that whole pipeline. Gotcha. Okay. So, so to sort of summarize, how as an outsider I would see CodeShip then is that the the specific unique features that you'll provide are are. Uh, I think what people would usually call continuous integration and deployment. So from yep. bu building the app, running the tests and then handling, um, you know, workflows based on the results of that process for deployment and notification. And that things related to that either on the front end, like automated code, code reviews or on the back end, like, um, like monitoring of, of changes to the, to the system from a, from an error standpoint or an uptime or a, or a performance would be, would be, uh, integrations with other services for the most part. Did I get that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that in the end, like we're, we're the underlying tool that drives the whole workflow and we, so we're really like, we're, we're a workflow tool in the end. Like if you really break it down, like that's the core of, of what we think about. So we think about like how do people, what is the necessary steps that people need to take to in their development and deployment workflow. And we have a like on top, like that is a technical product that we've built to support these workflows. But then we let people build arbitrary workflows. Of course, we think that specific best practices are out there, um, like automated testing and, and stuff like that. So we help people make that exceptionally easy. But um, people like can build whichever integrations and can run whatever scripts they like to build exactly the kind of workflow and the kind of process that they think is best. So they get the feeling that they can push faster and faster and faster and faster. And yeah. that's that's at the core. It's it's really yeah enable people to 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 get that feeling that we can move very very quickly. And the the more complex the application gets. Um, we can even go faster than with, or the, the bigger the, the application gets, you can still at least maintain current velocity or go faster in the future. I think that's that's really important because often it just happens where team like lo totally lose velocity and how, how fast they can innovate. And that's something that, that they need to think about because it's, it's gonna hurt them dramatically otherwise. Cool. So uh, let's do two things. So um, I think this is an interesting opportunity to for me to um, read the ad that I usually mm -hmm. do for CodeShip, and let's sure. see if it's let's see if it's as good as it could be, given what we just talked about, because now I know more. And then uh, let's get behind the scenes, and I want to hear all about the the challenges of building and running CodeShip that users mm -hmm. may not have any um, understanding of. Sure. All right. 
So uh, it's a bit funny to read an ad, given that we've been talking about <laughs> code ships. So we're going to make this a bit meta. Here we go. Sure. Uh, today's episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by CodeShip. CodeShip makes continuous delivery simple. Set up your continuous integration server on CodeShip in a few easy steps, and your software will automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. CodeShip has great support for multiple languages and test frameworks. You can easily integrate with GitHub and Bitbucket for code hosting, and then deploy to cloud services uh, like Heroku or AWS or your own servers. Start out with CodeShip's free plan. Setup only takes a few minutes. You can find CodeShip at codeship.io slash 5x5ruby and use the offer code 5x5ruby to get 20% off any plan for three months. You can also check out their blog at blog.codeship.io to get updates. I'd like to thank CodeShip for sponsoring this episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast. All right, so how do you think that goes? Very well. Now, usually in the middle, I end up talking to the uh, the guest about continuous integration and CodeShip if they know it, and sometimes Austria. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we've already done that. <laughs> so, anyhow, uh, I, I invited you on because uh, I was interested in this story, but I uh, you know, should personally thank you for uh, for sponsoring. Oh, all right. Happy. So uh, let's talk about uh, the challenges of CodeShip. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the what are the top three trickiest things from the CTO's perspective about about running a service like CodeShip? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I mean, specifically as from a, from a, I mean the, the trickiest part as a CTO I think is is always uh, hiring and building the team uh, to support the longer term vision. But in terms of technology, it's it's really making sure that with all the up, so we support so many different kinds of technologies um, that can update at any point. So being able to support the the ones so that the trickiest part is definitely being being able to support the ones that the most people at this point need. And still giving enough flexibility for people to build the system in in a way that they that, that works for them best, um, but tight enough that we have enough control over it, so we we can make sure it works well. So when when anything like RVM updates or anything else updates, um, to to test exactly that everything works, or finding like the niche problems that might happen and fixing them quickly, um, that's been. A challenge definitely and that's just something that takes a long time to build and just a lot of people to to hit the our system um to just like figure out all the little quirks and all the little problems and all the little settings that need to be done to make all of this work together nicely in one virtual machine um so that's definitely been been very tricky over the the, the long term and is still um something that comes up from time to time so let's talk about um Let's talk about uh, the um, the sort of process of handling a new Ruby. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll tell you how I usually want to do things. So a new Ruby comes out. I probably watch for a, a couple of days or maybe the couple days leading up to the, the final new Ruby coming out. And if it's good, I want to upgrade immediately. And, and be, I host most of my stuff on uh, Heroku, and usually mm-hmm. that means I wait for them to give the the green light that they're on the new Ruby, which usually happens the same day that it's out, and um, and then I'll switch to. Is 
it, it's difficult to do that if you use a continuous delivery service. If that service, well, you really can't do it at all. If that service doesn't also uh, offer that Ruby on the same day, how do, do you try to make that happen? And and what's the lag? And what's involved in in making sure that that you're sort of in sync with uh, with, with Ruby? Um, yeah. So definitely we want to support it as fast as possible. So um, typically, like if a new version comes out, it's relatively easy for us to put it in um, quickly. Um, so we try to do it on the same day or in the first couple of days um, when, when, when people um, want to use it. Um, so that's relatively straightforward um, for us to do. We just We basically need to build it, need to package it and put it on S3. Because there's always, like, we don't want to rely too much on third-party services or third-party data centers or something like that. So always having it on S3 is really important. And we just tr- we try to push all the downloads and everything we need to to build our virtual machine, have all of that stored somewhere in S3 and, and not pull it from, from third-party as those third-parties, like, some third-parties always down. Um, so which just doesn't work for us then. Um, so besides, and, besides doing that, there isn't, it, it's not that difficult to support a new Ruby except to make sure that you've got the binary. Done. We just, yeah, we just need to make it like it needs to be installed and, and just, I mean, work from a general, like how we integrate it. If there's a bug in Ruby, it's going to be in every root in, in that version of Ruby everywhere anyway. So there's not really that much. If people upgrade to that specific version and there is a problem with that specific version, then that problem is on our system as well because we use that specific version. But it's but that's something more general then. But otherwise, we just need to make sure that that version is installed. Um, we rebuild the whole virtual machine, have that included, and then people can can use that immediately. I used to use a, um, one of your competitors, and mm-hmm. um, the, the reason I left was actually this. This is why I'm asking the question. Because it, it, they never seemed to offer the the version of Ruby that was the latest when it was available. And it, it just was a deal breaker. Because you actually made this point before. It screwed up the process of yep. handling um, kind of the entire workflow of going from, you know, local testing to merging into a branch to, you know, staging to production. Yeah, absolutely. So that's why we we try, especially with stuff like the Ruby version, which is just so basic and so essential that if we don't upgrade that quickly, that's really something that's really a deal breaker for a lot of people. Um, so that's why we are very, that's something that we are very quick on. And like we use Ruby ourselves. So we just like, we want to stay on the latest version as well um, pretty quickly. So we want to support it as, as quickly as possible for just our own needs even. Um, but but yeah, that's generally possible. That's that's easier with Ruby. It's a lot harder if you go into databases, um, where it's just a lot harder to support all various kinds of databases, all various kinds of systems running all the time. Um, where we often just have to draw a line where we say, okay, we support this is the w- version that we support, and this is it at this point. Um, I think that's something that. Um, on the one hand, like it, it's a it's a very basic decision that that we need to take on on our end is what's really the biggest focus for us is it providing support for any version of any software out there, or focusing on the w- versions that are most widely used, 
and then having enough time to build the whole features that make delivery and the whole deployment integrations possible. Because just building a system that supports everything under the sun is a lot of work. And the question is, what's the biggest impact that we can have on our customers? And we don't think that just supporting everything under the sun and every version of everything under the sun is necessarily the most the thing that the most people really need and really helps them the, the, the most. So what is the distribution of, of frameworks and, mm-hmm. and languages on the system? What's most common? So it's definitely um, Ruby is, is, is the most common. So the Ruby Rails Heroku is definitely the biggest one um, for us since just the Ruby community is generally very open to, to go to the cloud, um, much more so than, than other communities are and have just embraced the the cloud a lot more um, with GitHub, Heroku, Amazon, and, and, and other stuff. Then Node.js is pretty big. Um, Python is relatively big. And yeah, Java is then the one that's coming up more, um, though it's more like Play or Scala, um, mm-hmm. or just Play, Closure a bit, uh, that's coming then. But definitely, I mean, Rails is by far, Rails Heroku or um, Rails and Amazon is by far the, the biggest share at this point. Do you use Amazon for your infrastructure? Um, yeah, so we are hosted on Heroku. So the website itself is hosted on Heroku um, and the build servers are hosted on, on Amazon. So we use relatively large, or relatively, like the largest uh, C2.x um, uh, something something um, um, servers from Amazon. So the large compute um, instances and we just use Elixir um, to split it up into different um, machines for every build. So you get a new virtual machine for every build, and which Elixir is just great technology, starts very quickly. Um, we can just um, run thousands of them um, a day very easily, and, and it scales very well. And yeah, so we use one big machine, um, run a couple of builds per machine, and then the more builds that are coming in, we just start more um, of the large machines on, okay. on Amazon um, that just pick up from a queue, basically. Um, so we use Sidekick for that. Pick from Sidekick and um, start working on the build and push data back into our, our database. So if they wait in the queue a little bit, then so be it. But if the queue gets too long, you kick up more. And, and that's totally automated. So. Yeah. The, uh, the the automation um, for so scaling is, is totally automated. We just check if there are more builds coming in, that there is resources in place, then we just start um, new servers. Which so the way we built our service is we 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 think a lot about uh, immutable infrastructure. So that's something that we um, believe in very strongly. I think that you talked to to Chad Fowler. I recently uh, heard yeah. that one. Uh, that was a good episode. That, well. that was a good episode. He was a great guest, Evan. Yeah, he's he's really really good, especially on on, on on a lot of different topics, but on that topic as well. Yeah. And I'm I'm currently I'm currently writing a, a blog post about immutable infrastructure as well that should go out in a couple of days. Um, and and it's really like something where because we we pre-built the AMIs on Amazon, so there's everything is installed, everything is ready. It's just start that server on Amazon, and in like 45 seconds to 55 seconds. Like the server is up and running and can build pick builds off the queue, so even if there's like if we need more capacity, it's it's very quick to start one or ten more servers. So mm-hmm. like today, so so for example, GitHub had a problem today where their their uh, hook infrastructure was down for a bit, and then we just got 
because they, they needed to shut that down and then restarted that. And just a lot of hooks came in at the same time. So it was very easy for us to start just a lot more servers at that point, just keep working on those um, builds that came in where just a, a bunch of builds came in or more than, than would typically at, at once come in because they just restarted their infrastructure, just started more servers. All of them got picked up in, in a couple of seconds. And that was that. And there, there was no, no larger lag or something like that because we can't just start new machines um, very, very quickly. You don't have to provision them after they are started. They just start and, and, and start working on the builds. How important is latency between the 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 push to their repository and the you know the 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 build running and on your machine to customers? Is that something you hear about a lot, or or not really a huge deal? Uh, not at all. I, I think there's there's a certain limit of maybe a minute or maybe if under a few minutes where people don't notice um, at all. So obviously we try to make that pretty much instant, so to have enough resources all the time um, to, to be able to accommodate um, whatever builds come in. Um, but typically, like, if there's just, if more stuff is coming in and we need to spin up a new machine and it takes 45 seconds, and typically it's not like, so those 40, in these 45 seconds, your build will still, you typically don't wait for all of those 45 seconds, but it waits for a couple of them, then gets into part of the new infrastructure and, like, a new build is in the queue for a couple of seconds then, um, until builds on the, the, the already running infrastructure there. So there's typically it's only a couple seconds if builds have to queue up um, that they're waiting and typically it's pretty instant. So never been any major complaints in like in general um, that something is, is too slow there. Now, um, that, that whole area seems like something fun to work on the, the, the sort of optimization of latency versus cost versus speed. Um, yeah, th- that seems fun and interesting. The the making sure that you stay up with the new version of RVM at all that seems awful. I get why that would be the number one problem. Yeah, it's it's something. I mean, there's 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 definitely. I mean, in, in scaling and and how we so how we keep the system. So basically we, as a CI system, like a CI system is not the highest scaling service from in, or in terms of like the website, because you don't get millions of requests per day because people like it's people pay us for being a service that runs in the background. They can take a look at anytime they want, but it's not something that you take a look at all the time, all day. So yeah, it's sort of an asynchronous idea in the first place. Yeah, so exactly. So scaling or at least like for the web part is, is still a challenge, but it's not as big a challenge as scaling is for the, the, the backend system. But then the real challenge is just uptime, um, keeping keeping your service up all the time because people people don't necessarily, so if there's a couple of seconds delay till the build starts or something, that's typically not a problem. But the big problem if, is a, if a build comes in and just doesn't happen, that's something that is just a big no-go. So we need to have layers and layers and building more of the, those layers in um, to make sure they are any data or any build that we receive uh, is definitely going to happen, is definitely going through and just works. Do you and, use, so do you use um, Sidekick Pro then to do the queuing and to, to make sure that you don't drop a job if it crashes or... or yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. So we have Sidekick Pro. We've um, uh, a while ago um, pulled out our like the thing that takes the the hooks in, put that into a separate Sinatra application, 
to make that more reliable that that doesn't really have any dependencies anywhere um, and generally like pulling out those um, services into smaller applications making sure building in uh, different layers of um, fault tolerance or pushing data into different services pushing data like just getting the hook in pushing it into a queue to make sure it's stored somewhere and, and doesn't get lost so all these different layers that are necessary um, to make sure that when we receive a build or when we receive a hook it's definitely going to happen that's a a major challenge um because it just that, that, and especially because it has to happen automatically there is no like all failovers have to happen automatically um because we cannot lose a single request there right. um, if the website is slow or down for something that's still terrible and we're going to fix it very quickly and we want to have more automation and failovers there um but that's something that but the most critical part is definitely in when we receive data, when we receive a build, then people expect that build to go through um, at some point. Um, the earlier, the better, but as quickly as possible, basically. And that's what we put a lot of time into. So what capabilities does GitHub provide to help make sure that happens? So, for example, can you can you uh, ask them for a list of the the messages that they've sent on a particular hook to make sure that you've accounted for all of them, or if you miss it, you missed it? Um, so currently, I mean, we could always check the API. Um, currently, from with our current infrastructure, this hasn't been a problem for for a while since we moved out those services. So we just like we take that hook in, pull out the important data, and and write that into a queue um, that is durable and just there hasn't been any kind of problems so far. And what you can do on on GitHub is is with the GitHub services is that you just send the data to, for example, two different places. Um, and just have that data stored in in our main hook um, service, but also send that data to to backup services and and play around with that and and do different kinds of of setups that that are able that you can can really keep that data somewhere. And even if there's a problem on your main infrastructure, that you can pull that data from somewhere else. So that's uh, interesting. In so so you can. I hadn't thought about that. You can tell GitHub, you can give it multiple endpoints so that you've built in redundancy. Basically, you control the... So we've just implemented a code chip service on GitHub. So there's this GitHub services um, repository, basically, that allows you to implement your own hook service. And, and you should be able to just... like it just, It's a Ruby code, basically. So if you send the request there or somewhere else and you control that code, um, that should be fine. That's cool. And, and, and build it in a way that, that works best for you. All right. So uh, what's the second biggest challenge? I like the first because, you know, I, I, my philosophy on business is that any decent business has some amount of, like, plumbing in it. In other words, like, dirty yeah. work that other people don't want to do. Because if it was all roses, then, you know, then it'd be journalism or something that, or, you know, covering the NBA, something that everyone wants to do for free. Yeah. Um, no, totally. So, so what's... Uh, so I got the the first kind of nasty task of keeping up with the the versions of the components of the infrastructure. What would be another um, aspect of running code chip that's that's rough? Um, I mean, in terms of something that is not general to every product, like making sure you build the thing that actually your customers want. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah specific to code chip. <laughs> um, yeah, I think all that the. That's all because that's the, the part of in keeping up your like keeping up the, with the versions and keeping up the system is such a 
because that is really like that's the stuff that is the least fun because all the other stuff is pretty fun like all the other stuff is building cool features um for people um that is but that's pretty typical to to other parts as well is like the whole scaling and how we automatically scale how we get data in um into different um metric services and and how we can understand those that's all pretty that's all not really very nasty i think the all the only relatively more nasty part as you put it is really in in making sure what's all installed and all the part that is in there the other part we've at this point we've we've put so much time into our process that we just we can rebuild everything at any point and everything is basically scaled automatically um so there isn't there isn't really something that that we need to take care of in parts of the infrastructure all the time because it just it happens it just we push something into a repository it just is rebuilt if it works cool we'll put it in it's it's in production and it's scaled automatically and if it doesn't work then we get an email that the build didn't go through the ami wasn't built and so we don't have to activate it and put it in production i think that's that's the 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 part that we cannot automate is simply taking care of all the different versions and making sure the the settings are are correct. That's something that we just we can't. That's just not automatable because you need to figure out um, all the the stuff that that, that works best there. Um, everything else is really fun. Everything else is just coding and automation and or building cool features. So that's really really nice. Then how much time do you get to spend programming now? Part, um, not a lot, um, or at least not over the last couple of months. Um, I don't, I've pretty much none. I think a, a couple of hours maybe um, on the weekends or during the week a little bit. I do a lot more blog posts now, again, but I think that as with every growing company, I've, and tech hiring is just such an important part that that's been a lot of like my time over the last couple of months and still is. Um, so there's, just not that much time for coding, but that's something where I go back into more now. We've had more people coming in and more um, people devoted uh, to, to to the hiring um, process that I get to spend a little more time on content and coding and thinking ahead at like what's the biggest things in the future and, and where are we going with this. Now, did you ever build um, much of, of the CodeShip product? Like, So at, at one point, were you writing code most of the time? Everything from the big. So basically, we started the product in at the end of 2010. So and we got the first. Um, so in the beginning, we were four people. So there was one other um, guy with us, uh, engineer with us in the beginning, a good friend of mine. Was his name uh, Joe? I hope it was Joe. No, his name was Bernhard. Uh, <laughs> so that's <too> very. <laughs> if if only it rhymed, it would have worked out. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's simply now he he just like typical startup story like mid 20s late 20s startup thing is just he got a child. And he, it just it didn't work out for him. And he's still a very, very good friend. And like he helped me over like the next year still with his feedback all the time. So I'm, I'm very, very thankful for him for that. Um, just like startup didn't work out for him. Um, in the that was in the beginning, but pretty quickly um, I was the sole developer on it until November of 2012. So for about two years, um, I was the sole guy implementing it. And then uh, our first guy, um, Clemens, came in. And then over the next couple of months, um, more people came in. And um, they, fi they fixed all your crappy code, <laughs> or what they thought was crappy. All, all my, all my technical. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's it's it's. So he like Clemens took over the website basically, and then then Ben, who is now um, doing the the other parts of the infrastructure, took that over. And I think that. I think the important part is um, for especially for every founder when you start a project is that you, you have to take shortcuts. Um, it's just it's it's not possible any other way because if you build everything. Um, because you don't know exactly what your product is going to be. So there are shortcuts that you just need to take. I think the important part is getting getting into a process or having a process from the beginning that you're able to remove the technical debt over the long term. So starting out with testing from the beginning, making sure like everything is tested, making sure that you have a workflow where you can just push out stuff um, easily and immediately all the time. So even when I was like the only guy, I did a lot of test-driven development. I did a lot of... Um, so immutable infrastructure was part of that from the beginning because I didn't see any other way how I could possibly build that in the longer term um, and, and sustain any kind of speed um, without doing it like in this immutable fashion and like automating that whole build cycle and, and that whole deployment cycle completely. So that was something where we could get other people in and just because the process was there, um, we were able like to improve it um, over time and just get those... Um, this technical debt that you have to take in and like still and, and as every team does, like you're going to take on technical debt um, with every new feature you write, there is always going to be some technical debt that you have to take, at least in the first version, because you don't know exactly how the thing is going to work out, what exactly your customers need or how exactly that fits in. So you want to push out something. And so you can't build it like to 100% perfection because you don't know what that 100% perfection is. Don't so think change that, anyhow. Even and and things right. change. Absolutely, absolutely. So being able to have, like, I think that the process of being able to tackle technical debt, that is, like, if you don't have that process and you don't, don't have that automation in place and that trust and that great gut feeling that you can push something out quickly, then you're in a really bad place because then you have technical debt and no way to resolve it. And that pretty much means your technology is going to die. Yeah. But if you have... But if you can knowingly take on some technical debt at, at some point with the, the intention to, to be able to fix it and, and with the, the, um, the test in place and, and the process in place to be able to tackle that in the future, that is a reasonable, like that's a reasonable choice. That's, that's not something that is born out of necessity, but, or, I mean, there is some necessity to that, but it's, it's a reasonable because there's a re reasonable process underlying it and not something that you just have to do, but something that is like, there's a reason, there's an expectation of we are able to fix this if you just devote a little more time to this, but it's fine for now. I think but those we, choices, you know, I like to call them adult that, yes. you know, when you're an adult, you realize that, that you're going to have to make trade-offs that, yeah. <laughs> that you may not like, you know, that involve a cost in no matter what the direction. And oh well. Yep. Absolutely. Oh well. <clears throat> All right. So uh, we should, uh, I think we should bring it to a close. Well, one last thing on what you just said. So, what sports do you like? Because I'm going to use a sports analogy, but I want to make sure it makes sense in, in your context. Um, I mean, obviously, football or soccer. Soccer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh. So that that's a big one. I've I've tried. A lot of different stuff. Something that I really like, and I've did for a while before we went to the US, was kendo. I don't know if you know that one. That's um, so uh, Japanese, like sword fighting, where you like yeah. hit each other with bamboo swords. That's I can only like if you if somebody's looking for some interesting sport that is a little bit different and that involves um, 
very structured way of and very fair way of um, just hitting each other with bamboo sticks, um, which is it's it's a way too big simplification of what it actually is, but it's it's great. It's something that it's a lot of camaraderie. It's a lot of fun. It's 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 really really challenging and really hard. And how do you um, say it? It's it's Kenbo or Kembo? Kendo, Kendo, K E N D O. Kendo, okay. Um, and there's like Kendo. There's it's it's a, still a big niche, of course, but it's a lot of fun. It's just it's really a lot of fun. And after like a long day in the office, just going somewhere and having a room full of people who are very motivated and have basically armor on them, so they hit you and you hit them, is something very. There's something very relieving on that. <laughs> it's well, sure. <laughs> so okay so i'm gonna use a, a soccer analogy yes then. so now now do do people from austria root for germany or is or is it the opposite like the last team you'd root for is germany um um it's it it depends it's both so i totally rooted for germany um but there's a lot of people in austria as well like there's the big brother little brother um kind of um right. relationship with germany where some like look up to it like it's nice and but some people don't like it it's just it's a it's a kind of weird um historical relationship um yeah so shared language some shared culture but rivalry that kind of uh thing. yes definitely but but i think a lot of people a lot more than in the past rooted for germany uh in this world cup because it was it was like it was easy to root for them when they play that well yeah so the the thing that when I hear you tell the story about how you, you know you built most of the initial version of the various parts of codeship and then, you know, in the last, uh, you didn't give a timeline, but say the last year, you haven't really programmed anymore. That's like, that's like if Mueller in like this World Cup all of a sudden was, was spending all of his time coaching and didn't get to score anymore. It just bums me out because like, in a sports context, you go, that makes no sense. You know, you don't, you, you don't uh, rise to sort of the pinnacle of your skills and then all of a sudden move to the front office and stop, stop playing the sport and uh you know but but yet back to the, what we were just talking about you know there, there are some adult choices around that where you know someone's got to do the recruiting and if you always program there will never be more people or you couldn't raise money or maybe you wouldn't be able to talk to customers as much or whatever but it's a it's a bummer i think that i think that the the idea that the path ends for great programmers in management is is weird and and uh, i I agree. I think that's, um, and it's definitely something that, that I'm happy to be able to go a little more back into now um, and to do more, not necessarily on the product, but um, like other stuff and just like doing a lot of outreach and, and evangelism and content for us. Um, I think that the expectations, and I've definitely fallen through that trap, and like I think a lot of other tech co-founders as well fall into that trap of not expecting or expecting to be coders for a much longer time than they actually will be because um, typically there's a lot of other stuff or so my, my main tool that I use all day is basically Gmail um, which is just that's I just have a lot of emails um, or not a lot as our CEO but a lot more than typically I had to do when I was a developer because that's just that's just how it is and, and you seem at you seem at peace with that. You're not too conflicted um, about it. Well, I mean, there's always. I mean, it's definitely. I mean, as as developers, we we are builders. So I think the, you have to find a way to to get accustomed to it. And I've I've talked to a lot of other people, like a lot of other CTOs, about that as well. And everybody has their own way of dealing with it. 
and like you hit people with sticks <laughs> I, for example yeah and, and i think that's it's just you need you need your i think that so the, the what what i can tell people is who are going into this um be like think about that before and and if you know and i've, I've certainly heard from other founders as well that where they said like from the beginning is it was very clear to everyone on the team that they said that they are going to be in development and if the team grows they are going to be lead developer or in development still but they are not going to become um, a management position which is a fair place to be in but something that people need to think about and tell the rest of the team and be very open about from the beginning i think so that's something that's definitely so that's advice I can 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 give to anybody who's who's like in the position of being a technical co-founder of of something that pretty much like if that team is going to grow uh, you're going to be the person responsible or at least in part or in large part responsible for growing for a lot of other stuff than just technology and the role of a CTO is typically not leading the development effort that's just and and being very hands on on that that's just typically or in a lot of case is not it's just not the case so um if if you want to stay in that position you want to stay a developer um be very open about that from the beginning tell people from the beginning and and especially your co-founders from the beginning that this is where you're going and you're not going to leave that because then you can i mean there's always an expectation going to be of at least i mean you have to do some part of that simply to get somebody in who can like do that in the longer term and then so we've we also like we got now uh, somebody who who is very experienced in hiring people, and that's been very helpful um, um, to to have somebody who's who's not just done that for a while. Um, but be very, I think that as a technical founder, as somebody who who loves building stuff, and I still very much do, and I've I've definitely um, struggled with with not being able to to build stuff for a while, or with not building stuff. I think that everybody needs their own way of either like seeing like moving from being able to build the product to being able to build the team that builds the product that's something that some people like to do and some other more technical people just try to do side projects um do something build something on the side something interesting so this reminds me and i guess i'll, I'll close on this that uh, of a joke i saw on twitter the other day um, and I, I tried to look for it while you were just talking and I couldn't find it, but the joke was something like a uh, technical co-founder searching for full stack business guy to handle recruiting, answering the phone, making coffee, raising money, uh, you know, dot, 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 dot. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and it, I mean, it was like most jokes, I think, uh, while it was, uh, meant to be funny, uh, there's some truth in it, I think. Uh, absolutely. I think that, I mean... The expect, I mean, the expect, it just it managing expectations is is I think really important there. That I mean, you're not going to be, and I've definitely I've I've been in like a year or a year and a half ago where I've been in presentations where I was like CTOs were seeing exactly the same thing I'm saying now, and I was like sitting on my laptop coding and saying like that's not going to happen to me. And <laughs> six months later, it's the exact same thing that happened, which is like that stuff that needs to happen. I think that manic, managing this expectation that it's going to happen to some degree. Um, so being aware of it and making sure it's, it's going to be something that you can live with and can manage uh, and, the, and something that also can work for the team. Of course, you can say, like, I'm just not going to, I'm the only person that can do that, but I'm not going to because I don't want to. Um, in the beginning, that's just not, like there needs to be a reasonable discussion about which, 
what anybody can do and how anybody can contribute. And if you need somebody else who is better able to, to do that job, then like manage that expectation and just find somebody who can do that a lot better and find the, the Thomas Müller who can, the Thomas Müller of hiring and find the Thomas Müller of being the VP of engineering and, and leading the team and other stuff. So, so you're able to focus on exactly like what your main, like how you can benefit the team and the company the most. And that's typically the stuff that you're just the best in and feel the most comfortable in. Um, but yeah, being very open about that from the beginning and, and knowing that that's going to come is really important. All right. So where, where can people connect with you if they'd like to, to uh, keep the conversation going? Mm-hmm. Are you on Twitter? Yes, of course. So I'm, I'm on Twitter. I'm just Flo Matlik, my, my, my name on, on Twitter. And if anybody wants to send me an email, any questions, anything regarding mutable infrastructure, continuous delivery, or generally like something about being a technical founder, um, especially of a more technical team or technical product as we are, just send me an email to flow at Coachy.io. Um, I, I, I'm happy to answer them. I think most people, like, so just send me an email. I'm happy to do that. And other than that, yeah, I mean, there's our blog. I, I write quite a few blog posts. Um, and it's we'll quite write good. More it's in the future. quite good. The blog, I think. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah, we we invest quite a bit of time, and I think that's we we see that as as part of giving back in some ways. But it's of course it's also good marketing and just getting people to understand like how we think about building infrastructure and how coach it fits into that. Um, but it's just we like we like education, and we've done that with user groups and and Stud Europe and pioneers in the past. And just it's like our motto is really building for the builders. That's something that we like. That includes technology but also giving people like all the knowledge that they need um and just education cool well i should invite myself to come to your office sometime given that i'm relatively close to to boston (laughs) anytime let us know all right uh oh one last thing on codeship so if someone wants to give codeship a try they just just follow the instructions from before it's just going to codeship.io um we've just um yesterday um released our officially launched our um, freemium so you get 100 builds per month for free um you can just test drive it and and so the 100 builds new every month that's nice and then you can just get started we really think that um even smaller teams should be able to start with continuous delivery early um and so that's why we we have that freemium plan super easy to get started we support pretty much any major language out there at this point and you can deploy anywhere so yeah, and let us know, like, especially let us know if you have feedback. So if anybody has something that they like a lot or that they don't like or th- uh, where they think that we can improve, please let us know. That's how we know what we need to build in the future. All right. Well, Flo, thanks for coming on the show. And Thanks uh, for having me. For those that want to connect with me, I'm barely known on Twitter.